0: This morning, we move into the ninth chapter of Mark, and I really don't want to go there. I feel about the way uh, I imagine Jesus felt when he was forced into discussion not of his choosing. Several months have passed since the events recorded in chapter nine, but Jesus is still trying to prepare his disciples for what awaits him and them in Jerusalem. Now Mark ties the chapters together by noting that Jesus has risen from the seated position of a rabbi, formally teaching the disciples, and was once again on the road. And rising up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them and some Pharisees came up to him, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Now, divorce was not on the forefront of Jesus' mind. I really doubt he wanted to discuss it then and there. He didn't even want the crowds there. He'd been trying to avoid them, so he could concentrate on teaching the disciples, but the crowds had gathered, and the Pharisees had arrived, and being the teacher that he was, he couldn't pass up the opportunity to teach and answer questions. And even though the Pharisees' motive for asking the question was suspect at best, it was a legitimate question. There were two major schools of thought about divorce within Judaism. All the rabbis agreed that under certain circumstances, a man could divorce his wife. But the circumstances under which he could do so was hotly debated. None, of course, taught that a woman could divorce her husband, but that's another issue. The question set before Jesus was if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, all agreed, actually, that a man could do so. They just wanted to get Jesus caught up in the controversy, hoping to divide his followers Into two rival factions? The answer to the question could actually be found in the first verse of Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Well, it goes on to say more, but that was enough to establish the fact that a man could divorce his wife if she found no favor in his eyes because he had found some indecency in her. The controversy centered over what constituted an indecency. The more conservative view was that of Rabbi Shammai. He understood indecency to mean something morally indecent, in particular, adultery. A man could divorce his wife if she was unfaithful to him. The more popular view, at least among men, was the one held by Rabbi Hillel. He said if a woman did anything that displeased her husband, even as trivial as burning his food, he could divorce her because that was indecent behavior on her part. It was into this controversy that the Pharisees tried to draw Jesus as he was making his way to Jerusalem. And he was now in an area beyond the Jordan River where one's views on divorce could have fatal consequences. It was John the Baptist's convictions about divorce that so offended Herod and Herodias that it had cost him his head. No doubt the Pharisees would have been delighted to see Jesus' head on the chopping block as well. So they asked him to publicly state his views on divorce. Again, I doubt that the question of divorce was one that Jesus really wanted to address, especially at that time. And even though I knew it was coming, I really didn't want to have to address it either. I had assumed that we'd at least be back together when we got to this study. But even that wasn't something I was looking forward to. A sermon on divorce would certainly be hard to turn into a celebratory message to present on our first Sunday back together. So I'm preaching it while we are all sequestered in our homes, getting on each other's nerves. Hmm. Maybe it's not a bad time to talk about divorce after all. Be that as it may, that's where we are this morning. So let's get to it. And see what Jesus had to say about divorce. He begins by making it clear that it is lawful. Mark 10, 3-5. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Jesus knew the Pharisees really weren't interested in his views on divorce. They just wanted to get him in a position where he would make more enemies and hopefully powerful ones. They knew that for him to answer either way would be wrong in the eyes of some. But he didn't play into their hands. He answered their question with a question. What did Moses command you? They were now put in the position of having to answer their own question, and they did so by referring to Deuteronomy 24. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They had their answer. Jesus didn't have to comment on the legal possibility of divorce. It was obviously permitted by law. But Jesus didn't just leave it there. He went on to address the reason divorce had been permitted. Moses wrote the commandment they referred to because of the people's hardness of heart. The law wasn't an expression of God's approval. It was a concession made because the people's hearts were hard. Apparently, they hadn't been honoring their marriage contracts The law merely recognized that fact and put some controls on their behavior. Rather than rampant and indiscriminate immorality, men were now forced to legally acknowledge what was going on. They had to publicly confess that their marriage vows had been or were about to be violated. The law merely exposed the sin in their lives. And that's what the law was intended to do. As we know from the book of Romans, the primary purpose for the law was to reveal sin. Now, it is true that by defining sinful behavior, the law does make it possible for us to enforce some societal standards that must be maintained if we're to live together successfully. But the primary purpose for the law is to make us realize that we are sinners in need of God's grace, to therefore suggest that just because something is permitted by law, that it is acceptable to God, is to misunderstand the purpose for the law. Moses wasn't giving a stamp of approval to divorce when he made it lawful. He was simply using the law to address some of the problems that arose from the hardness of men's hearts with respect to their wives. By the same token, we must not assume that just because the law allows for divorce today, that it is therefore acceptable for us to divorce our wives. Divorce may be lawful, but it is awful. Reading on. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus moves now from the concession Moses made in the law to God's original intent in making us male and female, In the first place, God made us different for a reason. To therefore suggest that a couple should divorce because of irreconcilable differences is ludicrous. Men and women are different. And it's the difference that attracts us to each other. Now, we're talking about more than physical differences here. God did make us physically different so we could come together physically and become one flesh. And that obviously exposes the lie that two men or two women can be joined together in holy matrimony. But the differences go far beyond the physical. Without trying to stereotype male and female characteristics, we are different in temperament and psychological makeup. And couples are often attracted to each other because of the differences. As John Drescher notes in For the Love of Marriage, an extrovert marries an introvert. An impulsive person marries a calm, collected companion. A talkative person marries one who is quiet. Both can't talk simultaneously. A perfectionist marries one who is almost careless. On and on the list goes. Neatniks marry slobs. Elk hunting husbands marry women who write poetry. Affectionate women marry aloof men and vice versa. Gregarious and impulsive persons marry reticent and inhibited partners. The rationalizer marries the sentimentalist and the practical person marries the dreamer. So it's obvious that we are drawn in a dramatic way to marry those who are opposite from us temperamentally. We are fascinated by the person who can do what we cannot. We are attracted to the person who displays personal qualities we desire but do not have. We are drawn to the person who demonstrates strength where we are weak. And this happens even though we never take a minute to consider it. We are clearly in search Of completeness. God made us so that marriage partners can complement each other. One makes up for what the other lacks. And two lends strength to each other. Therefore, marriage has greater possibilities for growth than any other relationship in life if we accept these differences between us. And if we are able to respond properly. Responding properly to our differences, however, can be tested beyond the boiling point when we're ordered to stay together in our homes 24-7. The differences that drew us together can become a source of great irritation and even lead us to wonder if there aren't irreconcilable differences between us, that we are simply incompatible guess what? No two sinners are completely compatible, and we are all sinners. But if both are committed to becoming what God intends them to be, there are no differences that cannot be reconciled. As Paul Tournier has written in To Understand Each Other, So-called emotional incompatibility is a myth invented by jurists short of arguments in order to plead for divorce. It is also a common excuse people use in order to hide their own feelings. I simply do not believe it exists. There are misunderstandings and mistakes, however, which can be corrected when there is a willingness to do so. Living together isn't easy for anyone. Conflicts are bound to arise because we are different. God made us that way, but he made us different so we could be joined together into something we could never become without the other. He made us different so we could be joined together as one flesh. And into one complete person who reflects what God can do in the lives of two who ask him to join them together. What therefore God has joined together and is in the process of joining together, let no man separate. To do so might be lawful, but it's awful. And... It is sinful. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Apparently, the Pharisees had nothing more to say. Jesus had thwarted their attempt to embroil him in a controversy they had hoped would turn either the multitudes or the civil authorities against him. But the disciples still had questions. And so once in the house, Jesus continued. And what he said was even more shocking to them than it is to us. When Jesus said, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. He said something unheard of in Jewish circles. In rabbinic law, a man could never commit adultery against his wife, no matter what he did. A woman could commit adultery against her husband. And a man, by having sexual relations with another man's wife, could commit adultery against him. But a man couldn't commit adultery against his wife. She had no legal standing. By putting the husband under the same moral obligation as the wife, Jesus raised the status and dignity of women immeasurably. And then by saying, If she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, Jesus gave equal rights with regard to divorce to women. Again, something Jewish law did not do. What he gave to women in that sentence shocked the Jews. What he said about divorce and adultery shocks us. Now, admittedly, many in our society could care less about adultery. To them, It's a non-issue. Marriage itself is a non-issue. But to us, it is a big issue. It's one of the Ten Commandments, and we take it seriously. But even those who are concerned about such generally assume divorce frees someone from the stigma of adultery if they remarry. Jesus makes it clear That's not the case. To divorce and remarry is to commit adultery against the original spouse. Now, in Matthew 5 and 19, Jesus does make it clear that if a spouse is unfaithful to his or her mate, adultery has already been committed. And therefore, to subsequently divorce and remarry does not constitute adultery. The union has already been broken. What God had joined together has already been separated, but when we separate what God has joined together by joining ourselves to another, we commit adultery, and it is sinful. That is not to say, however, that adultery cannot be forgiven, nor that a second marriage is an adulterous relationship that should be dissolved. In fact, the purpose for Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, wasn't to establish the right of divorce. It was to prevent someone who divorces and then remarries to later go back to the original spouse. Once the marriage bond is broken and another bond is made, that bond is not to be broken. To do so would be to commit adultery against the one who is then your mate. Once adultery is confessed as sin and forgiven, it's over like any other sin. That's not to minimize it, nor to deny the consequences. The sin won't remain. They will. But adultery is no different than any other sin. It is disobedience to the will of God and must not be taken lightly. But it can be forgiven. The Ten Commandments prohibit coveting, lying, stealing, and murder, as well as adultery. Who among us would suggest that coveting is not forgivable, or lying, or stealing? We must even acknowledge that murder is forgivable. The temporal consequences of murder might be harsher than those for lying or stealing, but murder is forgivable. So is adultery. If it's in your past, confess it. Repent of it and be cleansed of it through the blood of Christ. If you're contemplating an action that Christ has declared to be adultery, repent of that intent and surrender to the will of God. Do whatever Christ would have you do to make your marriage work. Acknowledge the differences that exist between you and your mate, and let those differences make the two of you into the more complete person God intended you to become when you said, I do. A successful marriage doesn't just happen. It takes a lot of work. But as I say to every couple I marry as part of the wedding ceremony itself, the permanency of the marriage bond is also expressed by Jesus in the words, What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Well, actually, I didn't say that to every couple. I had one bride who didn't like the old King James word asunder, so I used the more modern word separate. Separate. What God hath joined together, let no man separate. God had made no arrangements for breaking the oneness of two joined in this happy and joyous unity. It is only man's sinfulness and infidelity to this plan of God for the peace and companionship of his creation that have brought marriage to a low level in our present society. However, I here call upon you to remember that until death takes you into the presence of your Maker, that the holiness and sanctity of marriage, ordained by God and placed by Him into the wedlock of the first human pair, will remain for you if you choose to make it so. It is true that man fell from God's favor, but it is equally true that marriage itself remains upon the high level in which it was originally placed by God. If entered into by two who have it in their hearts to make it so, and who have love for our God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that every one of us will honor the vows we have taken and will surrender our will to the will of the one who has joined us together, and that we will never allow anyone or any stressful situation to separate us. When we surrender our all to the Lordship of Christ, we surrender everything, and that includes the legal right to divorce. It's not an option for those who belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we've come to some hard words today, words that challenge us and challenge our society. Help us to embrace it as true. Help us to understand the way you've made us male and female, the way you've made us different, so we could enter into a relationship similar to the relationship you have with your son where two become one. Let us celebrate that. Let us us be challenged by the differences to to do those things that that accent the life of our mate, the character of our mate, that bring completeness to our home. In this time of... (laughs) forced togetherness. May we truly, truly understand what it means to become one. May we look for opportunities to blend our personalities together more perfectly than ever before. And may we indeed become one before God. May we demonstrate to our children, to our neighbors, to those around us, that being forced together is a good thing if we come together through the power and the love of Christ and the Holy Spirit who binds us together and makes us one. Thank you, Father, for making it possible for us to live differently than those who don't know you. May we do so faithfully. May we demonstrate as well as we can what's made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the forgiveness of sin, and the promise of the power needed to live lives in obedience to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.